0: Welcome to this week's Made in Scotland podcast brought to you by Ogilvy Ross. I'm Gary Robinson. This week's guest is Executive Chairman of DC Thompson Publishing Group, as you know one of the world's largest family owned media groups. He's worked as Global CEO of Psycho Entertainment, the joint venture between Simon Cowell and Sony, and um, running the uh, and developing the global and commercial strategies around the X Factor and uh, the Got Talent brand as well. Uh, Director of numerous Blue chip um, boards uh, Ellis's first break uh, Came as uh, a young marketing director At The Sun and The News Of The World reporting directly to Rupert Murdoch Which I'm sure was um, Colourful to say the least And he lives in Scotland he has a 30-inch inside leg. This is on your bio, by the way, fella. Uh, and he's surpri- and he's a surprisingly good dancer when drunk. There you Delighted go. to welcome Ellis Watson. Hello, to mate. The nice to see you. Likewise, thank you for joining me. Um we are talking in, in the main in this series of podcasts around, around leadership. And you've worked and led looking at your biography and what I know of you, Ellis, you know, some of the best. But um, Tell me, I'd like to know a little bit about your your early formative days, as it were. I mean, what, you know, what led you to do what you do? So, you know, if we look at that that role as marketing director for The Sun and News of the World, which is a big gig, well, you know, were you, were, you, were you brought up by a family that encouraged, you know, that sort of, um, you know, the sort of values, the work ethic? The... Oh,
1: I see. In terms of early, early, I, I guess not less so, to be honest with you. I, I was adopted. Uh, and I always knew I was adopted, I don't think it's ever affected me detrimentally, but I kind of grew up in a family where the parents that adopted me had a couple of natural kids themselves, and then they had room in their hearts and their homes for another, so I came along. And they were quite naturally studious, to be honest with you, Gary. They, they sort of did homework on time, and they worked pretty hard, and they had a good natural schoolwork ethic. And even though I had exactly the same opportunities of them same schooling, same standards, same parental stuff, even the same nutrition, literally. I think I've got quite a good understanding of nature and nurture because I was built more for pleasure than I was performance and I didn't really, frankly, knock it out the park like they did. I enjoyed school, but for all the wrong reasons, um... And I've said before, I I didn't fail a single exam, which is quite a good accolade, until you find out I didn't take one either. (laughs) So I I sort of did naff all at school. I wasn't disruptive or naughty, but I just knobbed about a bit. And then, I don't know what it was, but I did start work at 16 because the dad that adopted me basically said, if you're not going to, uh, uh, you know, study, then then you need to go and find your place in the world and contribute. And I, I found out I loved work. So no, I didn't really have an apprenticeship through school of of having a work ethic. I didn't really even give any concept to careers per se, but I just started work at 16 and I thought, man alive, this is a hoot! You know, you get to work with all these interesting people. No matter how trivial the job is, you get to learn things and be part of a team. And what was people the, what, pay you money. What was the first job? Uh, sort of first job job. I think I was about 16 and a half, something like that. I worked in a marketing department of a tour operator. Would you believe? then worked for their agency for a short while, then went and tried the London gig and worked for a proper agency in London. And one of the accounts they had just won was the Sun newspaper. And I think the then editor at the time, Kelvin McKenzie, had gone through about four account managers in as many months. He used to eat them for breakfast. I was the fifth, and he quite liked me, I think. So I, I stayed on the agency side for a while, did quite well there. And then Kelvin McKenzie just said, look, come and be the marketing manager. So that was, I guess, that was a segue to my first grown-up job, mate. So I was about eighteen years old then, and then I stayed with News International for for ten years. To be honest with you,
0: so when did you? So the 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 full-time gig for News International. How old were you at that point?
1: Uh, Seventeen and a half, eighteen years old. Wow, really marketing amazing. manager, and then maybe yeah, about then, and then then stayed there for a decade.
0: And why do you think Mackenzie liked you? Because he's is infamous. Were you were you similar? Are you similar? In...
1: Um. I'd, I'd like to think so. I definitely don't have all of Kelvin's talents. And I probably don't have all of his excesses either. I, I, yeah, we're quite noisy characters. Uh, people would describe us as being quite colourful and quite theatrical, I guess. So, so yeah, I certainly... I, I'd like to think I'm like Kelvin in his many positive traits. I mean, he's got a tenacious work appetite. Uh, he's got an outstandingly refined nose for bullshit, uh, which I think is a journalistic thing, but it, it helped me save time in my later adult career because you you learn to sort of cut through the time wasting stuff. And he's he's quite a a succinct and direct communicator as well. And I like to think I get that from him.
0: It's really interesting, isn't it? Because you think you know people tend to think that that marketing is what, seventy, eighty percent bullshit. You know, so you know, it, you know, if you don't come from that sort of background and you're quite a sceptical, you come from a journalistic view. It, how did you, how did you marry
1: that up? Were you just straightforward in your approach? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't subscribe to the marketing being bullshit, but I think like, 78% marketing is is wasted money. But I think truly authentic brands market themselves really well without being a, too much of a, a pedant on that one. But I think. Uh, The journalistic side probably influenced my career more than the marketing side because it just teaches you about messaging. You know, the sun is at least as sophisticated as the times, and those are my frames of reference, those sorts of brands. And how you capture people's imaginations can convey very sophisticated very dynamic arguments in an eloquent or succinct way. It's not a bad set of skills to be around. The sun's very much headlines. Headlines. It's very much uh, convey a message, get it in, get it out, populate someone's brain, sheep dip them through an argument as efficiently as possible, regardless of what you think of the politics and, and ethics of, of that sort of. Tabloid press and in terms of pure communication skills, it's a cracking apprenticeship for life. You know yourself; you're a journalist and you're surrounded by journalists. They're normally pretty good communicators. Uh,
0: so after after your uh, your time with uh, with News International, what was what was the next step for you? After
1: that? Uh, like all of the sort of five or so jobs that I've had, completely unplanned. I've 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 quite randomly pressed the to hell with it button. Uh, at a very, very sort of short notice. And on that one, I think I fell out with Rupert after about a decade. Uh, that was my fault rather than his fault. I acted like a bit of a egotist glass and walked off the set. Um, and with all the serendipity that's followed my whole life, I managed to uh, become chief exec of a, a small independently-owned television production company, which was Celador, mm-hmm. And I joined... Celeron International was chief exec when we just invented or Paul Smith had just launched Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? So I then spent three years, effectively, running, I suspect at the time, the world's most exciting telly company, which is bonkers, really, because I didn't know... I knew a bit about telly, but not a lot. But I knew about, I I guess, running a company and I knew about sort of scaling brands quite well. And I'd I'd met this company before because I I helped, in a modest way, get Millionaire off the ground of the UK. So I spent three years taking Millionaire to 100 countries turning left on aeroplanes, going to continent after continent, week after week, having the time of my life. It was a hoot and a, and a really good, exciting, steep business sort of curve of knowledge. Um, I doubt I'll ever have a job like it again because most of us these days uh, uh, try to, to, to take something that's reasonably successful and make it a bit more successful or that's having some challenges and, and get it good again. I was the privilege. I had the privilege of running a company of bright young things that were making something that everybody wanted to buy. I mean, Millionaire in its day was there was nothing like it. It was mm-hmm. really pioneering television, if you remember. So I was selling catnip. It was absolutely fantastic. Uh, we made a lot of money for the shareholders. Uh, it was some really bright people, and and I think in in our own way we're quite pioneering in telly. We we were the first brand outside Disney to make more money off air than we did on-air. So as, as a business model with entertainment brands, it was, it was quite pioneering. This was before Big Brother, before uh, most of those other brands that have done quite well in stretching their brands. Uh, we, we were very pioneering there, so it was way before Simon Cowell sort of stuff. Uh, so, yeah, it was a good time. Salador was about three years, and we took it to 100 countries.
0: And, and the move from from press into TV didn't phase you at all?
1: No. Um, I've never let uh, a knowledge gap affect me, which is bonkers, really, because I've had, as I've already confessed to, no academic training, but I've never been frightened of not knowing something. I'll try not... Uh, Uh, pretend I'm something I'm not. But if there's a gap there, I find that slightly bummed, twitchy, Oh, I don't know about that, quite uh, an empowering thing because it it makes me want to be better uh, and it makes me want to try and fill in that knowledge gap so I'm not at a disadvantage. Uh, so, So you can absorb knowledge quite quickly, fill in those gaps. And often, actually, in some of the business models I've run, not having years and years or decades of experience, not having formal qualifications is not a disability, I think it's an enormous advantage because you can ask the daft laddie questions, especially in media business models where uh, it's so disruptive because of the digital revolution in my generation. It's actually quite helpful to know enough not to be a complete arse at something, but not be so steeped in convention and routine that you can't learn to look at it through fresh eyes. So, no, I didn't find it scary to go from from papers to telly.
0: And, and then the relationship with Simon Cowell and Psycho, did that follow shortly after?
1: No, it didn't, actually. Uh, I then moved up to Scotland, uh, and it was very hard doing a, a tr- essentially a, a truly global job, which Cellador was. Uh, and ca- having that linked to living in Scotland, it's quite hard to communicate in from Russia or from the States or China, and, and it literally was a different continent every week, sometimes two continents a week for three years. So I wanted to come back from the UK and I wanted to... Uh, to try sort of grown-up jobs again. So I got asked to become uh, a chief exec of Mirror Group Newspapers, and I did that for uh, a few years. Uh, And that got me not only back to the UK, but part of that empire was the Daily Record and the Sunday Mail. So I was able to have three nights and three days up in Scotland. Um, So I did that for, for, for three years. And that was good, actually, because... I've come from running an incredibly successful company where everybody wanted to buy it, to running quite a broken company. You know, Mirror Group was post-Maxwell, still had some of those sort of shadows over it. It was a publicly owned company, which I don't think is any sensible place for national newspapers. It brings with it a lot of other challenges to try and stay entrepreneurial in a public marketplace, which I don't think is, is, is lends itself very well to, to, to brave dynamic uh, uh, growth. And, of course, it was right in, in the teeth of the digital revolution. You know, when I, when I first started in newspapers, because uh, I'm such an old git now, uh, in the sun in the sort of late 80s, the digital revolution was, was I think, was something that weird university people did in America. I then do whopping for 10 years. I go out and do telly. I come back unrecognisable you know Uh, and I think that that was a really cool thing for me to run a very successful company to run a really challenged company it was it was good for my cerebral muscles and my energy levels and it was a lot of fun you know Piers Morgan was probably my uh, best friend at the time still close friend now uh, despite his denials of my existence in life Uh, and uh, he and I uh, kind of had some fun for a while at Mirror Group he then left under that cloud and I had another year or two there and it was super fun. So I went from Celador uh, to Trinity and then I quite liked that whole public company thing. That that really taught me that and I still wanted to get more into Scotland. So I then uh, became chief exec of, of, of John Menz's distribution. That was very broken. So that was the time at the recession uh, and we were pretty close to tripping our covenant. So that was quite a a, a scary time for us. And then again, taught me to be very good. So we we fixed menses and that was great.
0: How do you, how do you lead people through, through the, the hardship of a broken company?
1: I think I find, well, it it could be just me, but I, I find it more exciting and easier to lead people to stay within the boundaries of your question. When something's quite challenged than it is when it goes very well, when it goes very well, People are often kidding themselves. It's their own genius that's created that excitement, which means they become lazy or complacent and and they get a a little bit competitively naive. But I think adversity, especially big adversity, actually people engage with you more and they look to their leaders to want to have really clear dynamic instruction because they they realise that kind of their mortgages are slightly dependent upon... Not what necessarily what that leader does, but the how leader gets the best out of them. So how do you lead a broken company by honesty and by transparency? Uh, and, and I guess by example, where you say, "Look, mate, my job is as much at risk as yours." In fact, it's by right, it should be at more risk, because it's my job to make all of our jobs more secure. Uh, not because I'm going to negotiate like some sort of a union leader with shareholders, but to try and give a better return on our endeavours and our labours. And we owe it to our shareholders. They, they pay our money. They pay our wages. They give us the tools to do our job. And I'll, I'll manage the expectation of the shareholders for us as a team. But I need us as a team to deliver something in return for, for their faith and their trust in us. And we've got to fix this thing because it's broken or it's a bit skew if or whatever it is. So I actually prefer leading in adversity than I do in good times, to be honest with you, Gary. It's much more exciting and dynamic, and you tend to have a more exciting journey.
0: I want to come on to, to um you know, to how you look after yourself as a leader, because it's it is a lonely place and i think resilience is is a, is a key word you seem to have it in bucket loads outwardly
1: mm-hmm.
0: inwardly i don't know mm-hmm. we can go there in a second so i just want to go, because i know that people who are listening to this will want to talk about you know the x factor and um, and the got talent brand and so on so so how did you find yourself working with psycho
1: so i got asked to sit on the public board of first group plc Samoya Lockhead, who's a, a very charismatic, wily man, had, had, had built that company over three decades but was coming closer to retirement. So they took me and the CFO of EasyJet and they put us both on the board, giving us different jobs to see who would take over from Samoya. I had the slightly easier apprenticeship because Samoya stuck me out in America to try and fix the North American businesses, which were broken at the time, with Greyhound Bus Corporation and Student bus it's quite quite big you know sort of hundreds of millions of dollars worth of of, of firm out there and we were on the way to fixing that i'd done my really good year in north america i was coming back to get promoted in the uk and on my last weekend out in america i went to go and see Piers for a weekend of silliness which i did sort of every six months and uh we went out to los angeles for literally just a night and a days with the mucking about before I came back to do more grown up stuff in the UK and uh, Simon sort of hijacked the weekend and said look x factors in a certain place got talents just coming through now he liked what I did at cellar door he'd come across me sort of i guess more reputationally than experientially and when someone with simon's charisma and talent and and, and frankly business opportunity says come and run my companies for me, it's quite hard to say. No, it's a bit like a calling, in a way, if that doesn't sound too theatrical. So that's how that happened, Gary. So I, I was then chief exec of the Psycho Corporation. Um, a load of record labels, but most importantly, a load of television entertainment brands that were outstandingly successful pieces of mass-market television, but not necessarily fabulously run businesses. So I tried to... Uh, uh, channel Simon's extraordinary creative endeavours into something that made him a little bit more money or for him and the other shareholders. And that was a hoot. That was brilliant. But largely based in America uh, with uh, all the challenges that 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 brings in terms of not being around with your kids uh, and I wanted to have a slightly more soulful uh, and tangible existence. That whole Hollywood thing is a little bit pretentious, a little bit superficial. And I think I was, after a a year or two of all the loveliness, was starting to miss some of the more tangible, grown-up things because in the entertainment business, there's not a lot of logic. It's all based on the superficiality of ratings, which I guess is a commercial currency in itself in that you can make money from an audience. But it's all a bit bonkers. And all a bit pretentious and all a bit superficial. Not Simon, he's actually one of the most grounded people I know in that area. It's all relative. It's like being the tallest dwarf. But he's, he's you know, he's an incredibly tangible and real person. But but the life, you know, that 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 A-list high-end super yacht private jet global television thing is great to be a part of, but it doesn't necessarily make for normal relationships either personally or professionally and I wanted to do a more grounded thing and that's when uh, I I re-engineered or re-entered the Thompsons life the Thompsons were a big shareholder of uh, Menzies they uh, were my near neighbours didn't know them well at all personally I just knew them professionally and about five and a half years ago they asked me to come back to Scotland full-time which was pushed against an open door, as far as I can concerned. That's what I really... You know, as you could tell from that rather wayward uh, career path that you've just taken uh, uh, taken each other through, I kept trying to get back to Scotland mm. and never quite made it. Even with First Group, which was based in Aberdeen, yay, I've come to Aberdeen, fantastic, that's only an hour away from home. Oh, sorry, mate, would you go and live in Cincinnati and go out to Canada and Mexico and, and run the North American business? for? And I, and I finally got back. Uh, five and a half years ago, and I think, uh, although I, I, you know, I'm a bit international in what I do for work, and I do a bit of travel. Uh, it's largely a Scottish family-owned business with not Scottish brands, largely UK brands, but but most of my teams are in Scotland. I'm very slightly obsessed with Scotland. I'm as Scottish as a Scottish thing, and uh, I love my community, and obviously I love my kids and my my life up here. And although I wouldn't want anyone outside of Scotland listening to this podcast and, and hearing the good news, it's actually a rather amazing country to be in, as you know. Uh, and I don't want the secret to get out, because a lot of nerdy wells and weirdos from Englandshire will start coming up over the border and ruining it all for us. But I've I, i, I I've been really lucky in that I have worked and therefore been afforded to live in some remarkable place in the world, which sounds like an immodest woody wave. It's not. It, it's It's a very honest frame of reference to be able to compare uh, and Scotland is utterly marvellous.
0: In terms of in terms of you uh, as a person as 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 Ellis Watson, um you are a remarkably handsome and positive person. <laughs> and, and 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 exude. You're very You've not you, said handsome you seem to refuse to no, say No I said handsome. and I said oh, okay. and so okay. we'll go with handsome. Right. Incredibly modest. There you go. Um, but but very showbiz. Yeah. Very showbiz in your in your um, in your approach. Um, has there been at any time? I'm sure there must have been somewhere in your professional career that took you into a dark place. Would you share it with us? And how did you how did you face it and overcome it? Because because with all your wonderful attributes that we've just spoken about, you're not Superman. You are a human being at the end of the day and we all hurt at some point or another. So I'm talking in professional terms. Is there something that you went, do you know what, Mm. enough?
1: I, this all sounds slightly superficial, but I can say devoid of any exaggeration, I could not tell you now of any real darkness. I have made some spectacular mistakes I mean, some real spectacular mistakes. And I know I have definitely experienced stress in my work life. I think not for some time, and even then only quite mildly. But I can say with my, my hand on my heart, I genuinely don't think I have been to dark places. I think I am blessed with an extremely positive gene. And I I think I have that switch that says, oh, this is really scary, or this is bleak, or as you described it as dark. And I'm quite good at having that pragmatic thing that says, what can I do about this? Well, these are the bits of this really arse of a situation I can change. So I'm going to expend all of my energy in working out what I can change to make that better. The stuff that I can't change, I can't change. I'm not going to worry about it. So I can't affect someone else's behaviour. I can't, I can affect the way it has on me. So, if someone's being an ass and I can't influence it to improve them by not being an ass, I won't let their arsonist touch me. Mm. I'm, I've got better at not being judged. I've had some very, very dark, judgmental people over the years try to emasculate me. And I think probably in some cases, try to break down that positivity. And I'm really lucky it's, it's relatively impervious, it's not delusional. And, and you say I'm showbiz, also sound defensive. I don't think I'm showbiz. I am. I think I'm very direct, and there's a lot of uh, uh, gush to me. But it's quite. I like to think it's an authentic gush. And if I'm talking to somebody as I arrive here and want to know where to go, so speak to, to the reception. If or if I'm speaking to a cab driver, it's exactly the same zeal I would to you or my kids or the most important person in business. And I think being authentic is really important. So, no, uh, uh, it, it sounds like a swerve uh, where I go, oh, Gary's about to, to launch into that dark thing and I'm going to have to reveal and I'm going to cry like a baby on a microphone. I just don't remember having those days. But honesty has got you into trouble in the past? Uh, I I don't think it really has. It has in that people go, oh, you know, I, I don't like the way he speaks to me. But often it's their own insecurity that doesn't like that because as as long as I'm not rude, uh, then then they're either offended by my uh, occasionally colourful language or because they don't like the directness. Well, that's a shame. And I'm sorry that you feel a bit sensitive, but, but you were being a knob or you were wrong or that wasn't a good enough performance or you said you'd do it and you didn't do it. So I'm just telling you, you didn't do it. And you failed. So what are we going to do about that to reduce the of failure? So yeah, I think directness, if if you want to call it that, can get me not into trouble, but but can offend some people. But it's normally a formula that works.
0: And how how has that gone down at, at, at DCT? Because DC Thompsons, for those who who know DC Thompsons throughout the UK and particularly in Scotland, know that it's a it's a great business. Uh, very traditional. Mm. And then it seems to me that you may have gone in a bit like a whirling dervish mm. and um, changed a lot, maybe even affected the culture in some way.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think the team have quite significantly. And I'm told for those that have been there for bef- way before I have, and we're very lucky, mate, we have an average length of service well over a decade. So they have a frame of reference that I don't, and they describe it as being almost unrecognisable. I don't know all for the good. You'll have to ask them. But I know that it is a dramatically differently shaped and feeling organisation. The P&L has been defibrillated. Uh, but I guess there are three things in terms of, I, I think what you're saying is the, the whole Ellis Watson formula. Isn't it an unusual home to, to have it in DC Thompson? It is, but, but, but there are three important considerations. It needed change. I'm the first non-family chief exec they've had in a lot of generations, and I think forever, in in running those particular businesses, Uh, and I think it's because it needed change. The second thing is I think that the formula when you restructure a company does require a different level of energy and communication, style and tenacity and efficiency and dynamism and... Me running a company, even me running Thompson's in a different time in its commercial history, might be a bad thing. Right now, and for the last few years, and please God for the next few, I think it's a good thing because it needs that different MO. And the third thing, yes, in terms of style, we are very different, but I've got to realise once you cut through the veneer of style and the method of doing something, the principles behind my skin and their skin, different colours that we are on the outside, are pretty similar and we want to get to the same destination, and they are, you you know some of them yourself, they are truly beautiful human beings. Their method of doing something is fundamentally different to mine. But as I've realised, it doesn't make it wrong to do it their way or wrong to do it my way, and they're quite happy to to challenge me and still leave it uh, to, to, to my style, so we become a hybrid of the two. Because actually, there's the destination we want to get to... And, and the standards and values with which we operate as leaders, I think, are pretty similar. And I know that I wouldn't be there unless I shared some of their integrity and some of their values, and also, with respect, that's less important, they wouldn't have me there, uh, because they've given me a big and important job to do. They take their responsibility as employers, as you know, with a real social conscience. They're integrity to employees and the wider community that we touch means an awful lot to them. And I intend to repay the trust that they have in me, not just in loyalty, but by making sure I act with the same values that they would expect me to do so. And I, and in, in, in doing that, whilst I'm sure I get it wrong or do it on occasion in ways that they wouldn't have done it themselves, I think I'm aware... Of the family that I represent in what I do, and every time I go into a baker 's shop or I buy a car or I stand on a spay a stage or I spit in front of a microphone or I sit in front of a school teacher i 'm not consciously aware in any way at all of oh I need to watch myself here i 've been very lucky i 've not had to filter anything i don 't stop and think about how i 'm coming across that 's why I do get it wrong sometimes I guess but I think I'm aware spectrally, and it's impossible not to be in Dundee and across the wider Scotland, of the good and of that DNA of DC Thompson and what it stood for for the last few generations. And I'm not just a caretaker in that. I need to take a more proactive role in that because we do have a duty of care. We do have you know, a couple of thousand employees' mortgages are based upon the success of us as a company. And our newspapers and our magazines and our other wider brands and products actually have an important job to do in the way that we are educating children, in the way that we are influencing a nation, and in the way that we are trying to hold a light uh, into the darkness that exists out there, either in the hope that we offer or the insight that we give Scotland and its citizens. And the Thompsons take that damn seriously, so I make sure I do too. Sorry, that was a bloody long no, answer. That's no, a good answer, though. And,
0: but, you know, if you think about the, the brands, you know, within the portfolio, they've had incredible longevity. Mm. Um and and is that that's down to the way that the business has been run and the outlook. I mean I I know you know there are some publishing firms out there that would cut and run, you know mm. if something's not working, get rid of it, ditch mm. ditch regardless of the of the outcome but you, you know the the brand not only are the iconic but they've got that longevity about it and is that is that down to the thompsons and the way that they've run their business?
1: I think it is. I think that They don't always make the quickest decisions, but they intend to make the right decisions. And if you look at the brands that you're referring to, some of them are now hundreds of years old. I mean, literally, decade after generation after century. The difficulty that we've all got in an age where your kids and my kids are waking up and pinching and swiping what they perceive as entertainment and information and news and doing it free of charge is very, very different set of challenges. So the business model that is making, as you rightly say, a lot of these media companies cut and run, is unrecognisable. And it's our job to make sure that we make our brands and our business model contemporary for future generations. Because right now I've got uh, a 19-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old son and... If Nine Wells Hospital, Nature, and the good Lord do their job properly, a one day old baby in, in two and a half months' time. And my oldest daughter, my boy, and uh, our new bundle of excitement will almost certainly never walk into a newsagent and part with money. And my business model is 70% predicated on that right now. Uh, but we're getting there. Uh, and I think the reasons why that we are different is the Thompsons are here for the long term. They're not like a public company that worry about next quarter's dividend or next year's AGM or whether they'll protect their job. The Thompsons are worried about the next generation. So that, that kind of helps. They don't have debt and they like to be independent and they like not to put risk in their business. And they are also blessed to have uh, a team of people, which I'm lucky enough to lead, that are pretty Damn good, to be honest with you, Gary. So we're not out of the woods yet. We've got a lot of challenges, and I sometimes I think, wow, I thought this was going to get easier. Whoa, this is these headwinds are getting stronger and harder. But because they've chosen well, because they resource for the long term, and because we've got really good talent around us, if I do my job properly, then we should be OK for another few generations yet.
0: Two questions, then your song, um, and this—I suppose I'll need to moderate this one a little bit. But you talked on technology, and one of the questions that I'm asking all our guests is about the rise of technology and how it's changed and changed our lives. For me, in particular, over the past thirty years, does that does that worry you, or does that excite you for the future? In, in what, in society generally or in business? Going? Well, I think I mean you've talked about the challenges that you've got in business and, right. and the way that digital's going, but I think from a, from a personal point of view... so I think,
1: it, I think it does worry me because I think it worries me in that the ubiquity of digital communications to communicate is emasculating our young people's ability to reach their full potential as human beings, and I speak about this a lot. And I think the obsession that our kids have, and sadly a lot of us as adults, to worship these handheld uh, monuments and uh, uh, of 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 metal and plastic with these little Apple logos on that that, that are ubiquitous, uh, essential hubs through which we navigate our entire lives, is completely stopping the ability for us to fall in love in a conventional way, discover sexuality in a conventional way, to actually communicate with human beings using the gifts that we've spent quite a few billion years developing. And just in the, in the path time of civilization, the nanosecond that is the digital revolution is really ballsing up our role in society. Yeah, I can get a pizza really quickly... And shopping arrives at uh, uh, the best price pretty instantly these days. But unfortunately, I think it's stifling creativity. It's stifling, uh, albeit it's helping it in other ways, Uh, and it's stifling conventions. As long as human beings stop being so bloody rude, if I'm behind someone in a queue and a nice lady or gentleman is serving me or serving the person in front of me, and the other person who's handing over money or that customer is on the phone or texting, I think it's outstandingly rude. And if my kids want to bring a phone to the meal table, they are very, very welcome to do so as long as they know that it'll be quite uncomfortable when it gets removed surgently from their asses, because that's where it'll get ended up if we're going to sit down at a mealtime together. So I'm not a Laddite. I love technology. I use it myself. I think it's liberating in business. It's liberating in every aspect of our life. But as human beings, and especially as parents, Gary, I think we need to regulate a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at pushchairs at the moment. I know I need to get out more, but I get excited by such things. There are tablet holders on pushchairs right now. Excuse me? Are, are, we, are we really losing sight? There, there are people that spend decades praying for the privilege of becoming a parent and we're going to delegate that task to Pepper Bleeding Pig on YouTube. I'm sorry, something's fundamentally wrong with that. So I love technology and I've probably given you, once again, too long an answer on one that doesn't summarise the joy uh, th- that technology can give. It it, it liberates poorer societies It educates those uh, less privileged and it can be a completely levelling tool for society, but can also, in terms of the development of our own actual human potential, it's a right cop-out and it scares the pants out of me, Gary.
0: So all sorts of different people will be listening to this podcast for all different sorts of reasons, professional, personal. Um, Let's say that there is a 16-, 17-year-old... Uh, potential Ellis Watson listening to this, who maybe hasn't succeeded that well at school, doesn't have degrees up to their armpits, um, but are really keen to uh, to break into business or break into media or just succeed professionally. Um, what What words of advice could you possibly give them at this moment in time?
1: There is a formula which I think I followed without realising it was a formula for most of my life. And I articulated for the first time when I met my daughter, Holly, uh, uh, who I wasn't lucky enough to personally father, but I've had the privilege of fathering from when I met her at five. And I told her at five, just do three things or do at least two out of three every single day. And as a formula for life, I have guaranteed her that her life will be gorgeous. And these three rules, I think, are ubiquitous but not so anodyne. They're just generic and crap, like a mission statement that says, oh, we have to have integrity and we have to have honesty and all that nonsense. You can have the longest to-do list, the longest set of advice from anybody, but just do these three things. Everything will sort itself out. And after every school day, every uni day, every summer holiday day, how are the three rules today, Hull? And the same with my son and the same advice I give to everybody. Rule number one, in no order of priority, rule number one, have you done your best? It takes the same amount of time to do something well as it does to do it poorly. So just give it your all and take pride in what you do. Rule number two, have you been nice to people? Not just nice, nice, proper nice. Really mean it when you say thank you. Hug a stranger. Go and do a random act of kindness, but... but, the, the selfish joy you get out of being lovely to people, but with sincerity, not American. Ha, have a nice day, actually lovely, is fantastic. And a third bit of advice is to have a laugh. Laugh so much sometimes that some wee comes out of you. And if you can do two or three out of those every single day, you are guaranteed to sleep well at night, to be healthy, to be happy and to have an integrity of purpose. The one she drops out on is the one that we all drop out on, which is not to do our best. But actually, as long as you get that blend of three out of three or two out of three every single day, it's a beautiful privilege to be alive.
0: Alice Watson, talking of a privilege, it's been an absolute privilege to talk to You're you welcome, today. You're
1: welcome, Tom. It's nice for you to invite
0: me. My, listen, absolutely my pleasure. Before you announce and reveal your song, tell me, tell me a little bit why you've chosen this particular number.
1: So a, a lot of people will, will talk about their great... Opera influences on podcasts like this, and have that whole desert island moment. You, music has not been a big part of my life. It has my professional life, but I don't. I don't get guided by music. I. 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 When you're built with looks that not even a mother could love, and with absolutely no sense of rhythm, music isn't anything. Uh, but but I, whenever I listen to it, I think, oh, that's nice, or, or, or whatever. But there is a song, which I only stumbled across a couple of years ago, which I play relatively often because it has an effect on me and everybody that listens to it. Um, I found it uh, when it was first commissioned, Uh, and this is when it gets very high-end. I know you have a lot of very cerebrally advanced people on this show and they will accordingly talk about their cultural influences and it might be the Baroque region, it might be opera, they might talk about why they thought Mozart was much more progressive than Beethoven. The film I'm referring to is the Muppet movie of a couple of years ago and it has in it a track called Life's a Happy Song. I think in the unlikely event the authorities ran out of antidepressants, you should just make this song freely available and I defy anyone not to feel magnificent after it. We we are sadly fated with over 50 attempts at life on the Tay Road Bridge uh, 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 with the social challenges in and around Dundee and with the mental health issues. If they put some big speakers under that, bridge, that's what technology can do and whack up 100 watts a channel life's a happy song, you can turn tears into smiles it's a right chirpy little tune, but I tell you what, as a message beneath it, the lyrics make more sense than I think anything that you might ever hear on this podcast Gary Everything
0: is great Everything is grand I got the whole wide world in the palm of my hand Everything is perfect, it's falling into place I can't seem to wipe this smile off my face Life's, Life's a, a happy, happy song. song And there's, there's someone, someone by, by my, my side, side to sing. sing along When you're alone, life can be a little low. It makes you feel like you're three foot tall When it's just you, well times can be tough when there's no one there to catch your fall, everything is great, everything is grand. I got the whole wide world in the palm of my hand. Everything is perfect, it's falling into place. I can't seem to wipe this smile off my face. Life smells like a rose with someone to paint, and someone to pose. Life's a piece of cake with someone to. Someone to break! Life is full of glee. With someone to saw. Someone to see. Life's a happy song. When there's someone by my side to sing along. I've got everything that I need right in front of me. Nothing's stopping me. Nothing that I can't be with. You're right here next to me. Life's a piece of cake. With someone to give. And someone to take. It's someone to wash, and someone, someone to dry. Life's an easy road. With, With someone, someone beside you to share the load. Life
1: is full of hide With someone to stir. And someone to fry. Life's a leg a lamb. With someone there to lend a hand. Life's a bunch of flowers.
0: With someone to while away the hours. Life's, life's a, a fill of fish. fish. Hey! hey. Uh, yes, it, it is. Life's, life's a happy song. With someone by, by your side. Sorry, I was super excited. Oh, this is the most romantic thing ever. I've always dreamt of seeing Los Angeles. I know, Walter can't wait either. You don't mind that he's coming, right? Um, no. No, of course not. As long as we can spend our anniversary dinner together, that's all I ask. I'm gonna go check on Walter. Everything's great. Everything's grand. Except Gary's always off with his friend. It's never me and him. It's always me and him and him. I wonder when it's going to end. But I guess that's okay. Cause maybe someday. I know just how it's going to be. You're at right a on the street, Get down on one knee
1: and say, Mary by your
0: side to sing. a happy song when by your side to sing along. The Made in Scotland podcast sponsored by Ogilvy Ross was produced by Chris Kidd for Gardine Studios and GRC.